0: First, you think, is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Good morning. And I want to thank um, Reverend Amy for inviting me to join you this morning. Um to share my, my thoughts on smiting and how um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. So Unitarian Universalists are not generally known for smiting. Um, we are the peace seekers, the angry, gentle people that Holly Near sings of. We chant that each and all be filled with loving kindness, and that we be at peace, at ease and whole. We are stereotypically, perhaps caricatures, we are Birkenstock wearing, sprout eating, tree hugging pacifist end of the liberal religions religions spectrum here in the United States. And while our shared and affirmed seven come eight principles may be lofty and legitimate, Our delivery method has us on the verge of becoming irrelevant as a force for justice in the face of the 21st century version of fascism. We are resistors, yes, that is in our foundational DNA. It is the reason for the image of our flaming chalice. When Unitarian minister Waistel Sharp and his wife, Martha, were smuggling intellectuals out of Europe in 1939, the flaming chalice was the symbol created to let those seeking safety know that it could be found where they saw the chalice. The Unitarian Universalist Association adopted and modified that symbol throughout the years, and it opens and closes many of our sacred events. But have we become too polite? Maybe we've always been too polite. Have we forgotten as people how to call out what is evil and bad, to name it loudly for all to hear and denounce it in a way that is forceful enough to make a difference? I think there are a lot of times when we bury our best efforts under the toxic burden Of good manners. There are some basic truths we must acknowledge. When people are not operating from a place of reason, trying to reason with them is like trying to explain parallel parking to a pig. All it does is frustrate you and bore the pig. Hate is rarely a rational emotion. Hate and fear live in the amygdala back here. It's what we sometimes call the reptilian part of our brain. It is the ancient primitive survival part where all input gets sorted into one of two categories, presumed safe, presumed unsafe. When a thing or person or an idea is labeled as presumed unsafe, millions of years of cranial evolution fly out the window, and the brain responds with the familiar fight, flight, or freeze response that we've all heard of and probably experienced. Often, anything that is new or unfamiliar gets tossed into the unsafe pile based on the binary function of neurons and the primitive logic of if it cannot fit easily into the presumed safe category, then it must be presumed unsafe. Now, if you're a wild animal, that primitive brain function helps to keep you alive. Huzzah. But as humans, it really screws up our ability to learn new things. All things that are new or strange or unfamiliar are initially judged by that part of our brain as unsafe. And it is only through experience with those things that we learn which are safe and which are not. And that does not happen through logic. It happens through experience. The fear center of our brain must be overwritten with new information. And that process in itself is frightening, which makes it all the more challenging. When someone has decided that a certain type of people ought to be eliminated, there is no amount of reasoning that can dissuade that person from their beliefs. No amount of nonviolent protest is going to inspire within them a sense of compassion for those whom they have already judged as evil, unfit, or less than human. They feel no obligation to be nice to those they hate. In fact, they take pride in their perceived strength when they eliminate people. The term we've heard most recently for this is ethnic cleansing. The polite term for genocide, of course, ethnic cleansing. It relies upon the assumption that some part of the population is unclean and must be scrubbed away. You know, like Hitler's ultimate solution, as though there was a problem that needed to be addressed. Now, before anybody gets the words not all conservatives into your brain, I'm going to tell you to stop that nonsense and listen for a moment. There was a saying in Germany at the time of World War II that went like this If there were 12 people at a table and one of them was a Nazi, but the others did not discredit him, then there were 12 Nazis at the table. We who are liberal and progressive and like to think ourselves peaceful warriors for justice. We like to quote all all sorts of things from Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. But the part we seem to skip most often is the part he addresses to white moderates. Dr. King wrote, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Oh, oops. Yeah, we do that. We are often risk averse. We prefer to negotiate, de-escalate, to reason with those who hate. I remind you again that there is no reasoning with people who are committed to staying in their reptilian brains. So what can we do if we cannot reason our way to justice? This is where the smiting happens. There are many methods for smiting. So do not think I'm going to arm each of you with a baseball bat and instruct you to go about smiting on the head people who are being hateful however tempting or cathartic that might seem. Smiting requires us to do something publicly that we'd really rather not, judge people. See, not only are we devoted to peace, but we are also devoted to the tranquility of the sort Dr. King describes, where there is no tension. But if there is no tension, that means that injustice is going unchallenged. And challenging injustice demands that we declare there was a right and a wrong side to an issue. To be allies, we must be willing to make others uncomfortable. And that often makes us uncomfortable. We want people to like us. We're nice people. We don't like it when they're mad at us or deny us access to their reindeer games. Well, guess what? If we want to live in integrity, we must be willing to take a moral position and stick to it, even if it means people don't like us, especially if it means people don't like us. I am asking you, good people of Des Moines, Iowa, to stretch. I am asking you to be impolite. I I know that's a challenge. I lived in the Midwest for a a while, but I'm telling you that the culture of Midwestern nice is more than a little problematic when it comes to creating justice. Because that kind of politeness is the very thing Dr. King referred to. The sort of moderation that undermines actual justice and prolongs injustice. Our readings today from Natasha Leonard illustrate what the white moderates of Dr. King's lament are still a powerful force. And, Leonard argues, the prevailing voices in both journalism and academia today. The thought leaders in the U.S., as she said, presumed their position to be anti-fascist enough and thus recoiled when the current Nazi poster boy, Richard Spencer, got punched in the gob in front of God and the live television cameras. The popular conclusion about the fall of European fascism is that it eventually crumbled in the face of opposition by the superior moral virtues of liberal democracy and American ideas of freedom and liberty. It did not. It crumbled and fell, oh yes but it did not simply yield to those with the moral high ground. Fascism in the first half of the 20th century was destroyed through violence and war. It was beaten down with the only language that fascism understands or respects, and that is superior physical or military strength. It did not surrender. It did not be convinced by reason It scrabbled and fought to the last and had to be thoroughly beaten into submission. And then the lingering pockets of fascist activity had to be rooted out and similarly destroyed. Yes, often by violence. Fascism rejects any form of compromise. The whole purpose is to eliminate entire sections, great swaths of humanity in pursuit of some delusional idea of racial purity. As I said in the beginning, people who are operating, people who are not operating from a place of logic and reason will not be swayed by logic or reason or evidence or science. In various justice movements in the United States, resistance is often framed in the argument that laws cannot regulate thoughts or beliefs. And that is true. Laws cannot prevent people from being racist or sexist or anti-Semitic or any other number of terrible things. What laws can do, however, is regulate behavior. We can make it illegal, we cannot make it illegal to hate people for the color of their skin or how they worship, but we can make it illegal to treat them poorly based on those criteria. We cannot change hate through laws, but we can make it uncomfortable to be a hater. We can publicly call out hate, name it, claim it and yes, shame it, to make it uncomfortable to be the hater. We can smite. Not only can we smite, I say we must. And what does it look like to smite people in the 21st century? Richard Spencer aside, smiting is supposed to be painful. It is the stick of persuasion, not the carrot but actually hitting people is still problematic. Although in some cases it does remain an option and even an attractive one. But instead we can find other ways to make hating painful for the hater, make it expensive or more trouble to maintain than to abandon. I call this smiting through peer pressure. We must be clear in our rejection of hateful rhetoric and behavior. We must be clear in our boundaries and communication. This I will not tolerate. And these are the consequences if you insist on behaving this way. Boycotts are good smiting tools. I do not shop at places I know to be owned or operated by people who support fascism and i'm not quiet about it either i'm sure you're fr- i'm sure you're surprised i make sure that i tell my friends and my neighbors why i don't shop at a particular place and this is how we make hate expensive we make hate cost people money we make hate cost people their comfort the comfort of friendships and relationships the comfort of their income The comfort they get from being respected members of the community. Keep in mind, we don't need to change people's minds. We're probably actually not ever going to do that. Remember the amygdala, that thing back there? What we're going to do is make it too costly one way or another for people to continue to hate, at least publicly. Let me tell you a story. I remember when I was an apprenticed sheet metal worker long, long ago in my years before ministry. Now in any group of people, there will be conflicts. There will be disagreements. And in the testosterone heavy union to which I belonged, conflicts occasionally were resolved with physical violence. Being new and one of the physically smallest people on the crew put me at a distinct disadvantage when considering such a resolution to conflict. But no one ever bothered me. I I was very clear that I was not afraid to engage in physical violence to defend myself, although I certainly preferred not to. I was also very clear that I did not need to physically dominate any opponent to win i nearly i merely needed to make it hurt more than my opponent was willing to tolerate i may not win i told them i just need to deliver an unacceptable amount of pain on my way down now whether they understood my strategy or just thought i was crazy it didn't really matter the result was the same they left me alone and never started anything that would lead to violence. So this is our strategy in smiting folks. I may not win you over but I will make it too painful for you to continue being an ass in my presence. Eventually, like using seat belts or motorcycle helmets or condoms or any other life-saving equipment, it becomes Natural and acceptable to behave in ways that don't, to to behave in ways that use those things and to not use them is viewed as foolhardy and stupid. Smiting has its challenges and risks, though. When we hear someone talking about undocumented immigrants bringing COVID or some other such foolishness into the US, we can say very clearly. That is not true, and it's racist. We don't have to argue, because remember, arguing or reasoning will get us nowhere. We simply name it, identify it, and smite it with words. This sounds easy at first blush, but what happens when the person spouting the hateful stuff is a family member or a dear friend? This is where it can get dicey. This is where it can mean risk for us. This is where we have to be ready for people to be angry with us, to reject us, to no longer like or love us. You may not be able to get Uncle Frank to quit spouting his QAnon delusions, but you can say, you're not going to do that in my presence. And if you do, one of us is going to leave. Now, if you're at your house, you bump Uncle Frank to the curb and tell him to come back when he control, can control himself like a grown-up. If you're someplace else where it's not your house, you're not in charge, you can ask him to stop. And if he doesn't, and if others won't make him, you can leave and make it clear why. Remember, 12 people at a table, one of them is a Nazi. If the others do not denounce that person, there are 12 Nazis. Natasha Leonard ends her piece in the Evergreen Review with a story of a conversation she had with her grandfather who was a British expat now living in the South of Spain. She asked him if he thought it was acceptable for people to punch neo-Nazis. He replied without pause, who could have a problem with that? Then he told her the story of his father, her great-grandfather, who had joined the 43 group, which was a network of Jewish World War II vets and their allies who battled members and supporters of Oswald Mosley's fascist group in post-war England. They thought they had eradicated fascism on the continent with the fall of Germany, but fascism was actually reorganizing and regrouping and trying to start again in post-war England. Oswald Mosley's group attacked synagogues and Jewish cemeteries around London. Leonard writes, in response the anti-fascists of the 43 group made it their business to identify, surveil, and physically confront, disrupt, and shut down fascist organizing in London and across Britain. They use knives, knuckle dusters, and crowbars. We're, here, we're not here to kill, we're here to maim, they would say. The group disrupted over 2,000 meetings over five active years and is widely credited, credited for neutralizing post-war Britain's fascist movement. We defended the community by making it impossible for the fascists to terrorize us, one member, Jules Konopinski, told The Guardian in 2009 when he was 79 years old. The group's militancy drew some contemporary censure from parts of the British Jewish establishment. But for the most part, its place in history is either overlooked or lauded by historians. Holocaust Memorial Institutions, and other anti-racist groups, end quote. Now I strive to be a non-violent person. I loathe the idea of physically causing harm to someone. And yet fascism is beyond mere hate. It is an ideology of totalitarian nature. It's all or nothing. There's no reasoning with fascism and there can be no compromise. How many burned out synagogues is an acceptable compromise? How many camps? How many police killings of black men is an acceptable number? How many babies in cages? is acceptable in a compromise. There is no compromise here. So we smite. When the carrot of attraction does not persuade, then the stick of justice must be applied. Peace without justice is capitulation. Amen.